Hello and welcome to this Decarbonising the Rail Industry How to Go Further and Faster podcast. My name is Nadine DeRaza and I'm really looking forward to chairing and hosting this podcast today. Well, it's no secret that the transport sector overall is a significant contributor to the nation's carbon output. And although rail is a relatively lower carbon way of travelling and moving goods, having a lower carbon footprint is no longer good enough. Now, on the plus side, we've seen the rail industry develop technologies, products and services that can make huge reductions in carbon. But realistically, if we're going to meet the climate change goals set, decarbonisation needs to happen further and faster. And that means a speedier and more ambitious response and intervention by the government to enable us to tackle what is the biggest challenge facing the planet and society, climate change. So for this podcast, we're primarily going to put the spotlight on decarbonising the journey and how the industry can do it better and more quickly. And I have three guests taking part in the programme who all live and breathe rail, I think, on a daily basis. Uh, Two of them are in the studio with me and one is joining us remotely. So we are truly hybrid today. And first of all, I'd like to welcome Lara Young, who's the Group Climate Change Director at Costain. Welcome, Lara, to the programme. So how would you define the purpose of your role, as well as the role of Costain within the rail industry? Hello, and thank you. Yes, so I have helped create and architect the strategy around net zero. And now that we have established that strategy, it is very much bringing that to life so that we do follow through and achieve our commitments. And Costain, as a smart solutions infrastructure provider, essentially gets involved at every life cycle stage of a railway, be it from very early design all the way to the end user. So therefore, we have a huge opportunity to influence and genuinely want to be a clean growth leader. Well, I'm interested to find out as well as why you're committed or passionate about decarbonisation. Yeah, so on a personal level, I've always been one of those individuals who wants to make a difference and trying to figure out how, I've been on a bit of a journey to figure that out, but essentially I enjoy seeing, especially within infrastructure, the tangible change that you can have on people's lives every day. Thank you, Lara, very much. And my next guest is Emma Alexander, who's Head of Sustainability for Rail at First Group. And Emma is joining us remotely. Good to have you on board, Emma. It'd be great to hear more about your role and, of course, First Group, who I know operate many of the rail franchises across the UK, among other things. But it'd be good to hear about First's role from your perspective too. So welcome to you. Hi, thanks for having me. So, yeah, I'm in a newly created role within First um, Rail as Head of Sustainability, um, which I joined um, last month, actually. So I work across all of our train operating companies, integrating sustainability into our operations. Um, So we're the largest train operating company in the UK. Um, We've got four main franchises. So there's Avanti West Coast, Great Western Railway, South Western Railway and TransPennine Express. And we also have some open operation franchises as well. So we have first hold trains and we're really pleased to be announcing um, Lumo, our new operation from London to Edinburgh, um, which will come into operation next month. So we've got a large operation in the UK and my role as head of sustainability is embedding net zero uh, and science-based targets within our train operating companies and seeing how we can we can get to decarbonisation of the uh, passenger journey. And again, you know, the same question that I asked uh, Lara earlier, why are you passionate or committed to decarbonisation? Well, I've been working in sustainability for 22 years now, and it's really exciting to get to this point where actually people are 
are listening um, and it's really becoming part of the mainstream agenda. So from a personal point of view, it's something that I've been passionate about for a long time. Um, but it's really good that now from a first group perspective, our investors are asking us what we're doing about carbon and how we're setting targets to reduce our carbon impact. So that's really getting people um, in you know, the finance directors and around the board um, interested in decarbonisation. So I think it's a really exciting time to be working in this in this field. Yeah, it certainly is. Thank you very much, Emma. And joining me also in the studio is Helen Davis. Helen is the Director of Strategy and Business Development for Rail Infrastructure at Siemens Mobility. Helen, a warm welcome to you. So please introduce yourself as well as taking uh, us through Siemens Mobility and also why you're passionate about decarbonisation. Oh, thank you very much, Nadine. It's great to be here. So Siemens Mobility has um, a really broad uh, responsibility in terms of rail, both from an infrastructure perspective and also a rolling stock perspective. It is our responsibility to make sure that whatever we do is delivered in the most low carbon way, but also that we support our customers in delivering reduced carbon solutions. So it, it is critical to us as as our role in the, in, uh, in the industry to do so. I'm particularly passionate about it because um, I guess the the hint is in the job title, which is that I am responsible for strategy for rail infrastructure and Siemens mobility. And, and I believe that, that I want everybody to understand their role. I want to make it really simple to understand. I want, you know, it's interesting to hear, you know, Emma said about the fact that people are starting talking about it now, but I think it's also really confusing for some and we need to make it simple. And we're, and we're doing a lot of work in uh, Siemens mobility to try and get that message out. Well, thank you very much, Helen. So let's set the scene further and think strategically as to why decarbonisation really matters. So why is decarbonisation important from both your own individual perspectives to build on what you've said already, as well as the organisations that you represent? And please don't hold back on any challenges that you face in this area. Uh, Lara, um, with all that in mind, how does climate change actually affect delivery of your work at Costain? It affects essentially everything that we do. So the entirety, as I said, we get involved at a life cycle stage across the entirety of a project. And from what we're designing, how it be delivered, how it would actually be used by the end user has different impacts on the greenhouse gas emissions that are associated to that. So fundamentally, it's business critical that's something we address it's a need that society has as well and from Costain's perspective we have a responsibility to, to do this but we truly want to help lead the UK into decarbonizing its own footprint so the approach we've taken and the ethos is very much if we could focus on our own little bit of the world and only look at our direct emissions and whilst that is still great to do fundamentally actually the greatest opportunity or influence that we can have is actually helping our clients and our supply chain decarbonise. If we truly want to make a dent in the UK's carbon footprint, which our industry represents a significant proportion of, it's through addressing the whole life cycle of that. So that is truly because we have a purpose of sustaining and fulfilling society's needs in that through infrastructure. And it's interesting about that life cycle. There's a bit of push and pull, isn't there, that you're trying to direct your clients, but also you're also being asked of that, aren't you, on, on certain things that you're going up for as well. And I imagine that's become so much more of a factor in your, in your dealings and, and your bids for things. Yeah, I think massively. So the maturity around carbon and understanding, OK, what does it actually mean? How do we get to net zero is very vast and ranges quite a lot between across whether it's client supply chain and even within our peers and um, I think we are relatively mature in comparison to other organizations in that however we've not necessarily always been as good as communicating that so we're certainly learning to be more articulate around what it means but also bringing it to life for others that don't necessarily 
or aren't as far down that journey. So a lot of it is actually because all of us require to join up in order to achieve this, we can't do it on our own. So fundamentally, a big part is taking advice from those that are more mature in this space, but also helping and leading those that aren't so that we can all genuinely do this in collaboration. Because fundamentally, no one can do it on their own within the infrastructure um, world. So, yeah. Indeed. And we've mentioned the word collaboration. We're going to come back to that, I hope, <laughs> throughout this podcast, because that's been possibly lacking in the, in the railways industry. I'll leave it there at the moment. We'll come back to that. Emma, it'd be great to find out what impact climate change is having on your customers at First Group. Yeah, well, our customers are increasingly looking for more the lowest carbon mode of transport. And yeah, as Helen said earlier, we are a low carbon mode of transport. I think, you know, with the introduction of new services like Lumo, you know, that's a direct competition with 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 airlines and short haul flights in the UK. So we're really looking at kind of mode shift and how we can use that to help decarbonise the whole transport sector um, in the UK, not just rail. And how about from the organisation's perspective? How's it affecting that from an operational point of view? I don't know if you've got any insights into that as well. Well, we're already seeing the effects of climate change with kind of increased flooding, which affects our assets and then affects our ability to run our services and landslides and intense heat. So we're already seeing the effects of climate change and we're having to put together climate change adaptation plans for how we can make sure our services are resilient in the future. So this isn't, you know, a nice to have. This is um, an essential um, essential piece of work to make sure that we can t- continue running our services and it doesn't cost us a huge amount of money in the future to, to make ourselves more resilient. So our customers, when we've done customer service surveys, um, Great Western did a customer survey recently and they are saying that actually the carbon impact of their journey is driving their choice of mode more. So I think we have to make sure that we continue to decarbonise in the rail sector so that we can continue to be competitive um, with, you know, more electric cars and electric road transport. Yeah, indeed. And it's quite interesting, as you said, that resilience is so important. You know, autumn leaves on the train track, you know, that used to be the biggest problem now. That is just so minuscule in everything else that you're having to deal with in terms of climate change and the reality that it's impacting on your operations on on a day-by-day basis. So interesting points there. Helen, you know, from your point of view, you've mentioned about how passionate you are about decarbonisation. Why is it important to everybody else at Siemens? I think um, we need to go back to that sort of whole system view and the responsibility that we have as Siemens Mobility because if you actually think about what we do, we play in every part of the sort of decarbonisation story. And as Lara said, it's all the way through, right, from the point where that passenger makes that decision right through to the end of their journey. And and if you don't look at the whole thing, you, you can't look at it properly. Indeed. And I suppose it's about making it easier for people to use the railway. You know, that's so important. Yeah. Everyone talks about being passenger focused, but this is really the golden opportunity yeah. to truly make that happen, uh, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's a it's it's an issue like it's never been before because of COVID. And we we were talking earlier on that we're definitely seeing an increase on the on uh, in London on the underground. Um, and people are going back, but it's nothing like it was before. And, and uh, you know, equally, the roads are packed. Yeah. 
you know, it's got to be an easy choice, hasn't it? That's yeah. the point. It's got to be a, I don't have to even think about whether I'm going to get in that car, whether yeah. it be EV or whether it be diesel or petrol. You know, it's actually, I can do this journey really easily. And the top Department for Transport, from their point of view, they want to encourage people to walk and cycle, which is fantastic. However, for those medium to longer term journeys, the practicalities mm. of that means that it's really rail that has to form that part, but that intermodal working together so everything is synchronised better. Mm. And that's what we're finding, aren't we, at the moment, until now passengers have you know a tough time when they want to connect and use other forms of transport mm. alongside rail let's move the discussion on shall we to focus on what the tools the techniques and the technologies that can actually drive decarbonisation of the train journey it'd be great to hear about what costain siemens and uh, first group are already doing when it comes to decarbing the journey if that is such a word is it well it is now emma if i can turn to you first please a massive part of decarbonisation for us is around electrification. So where we've had electrification schemes on the Great Western Railway and we're now seeing on the Trans-Pennine route upgrade, that gives us a huge opportunity to reduce our carbon emissions because around 90 to 97% of our carbon footprint is from trains, um, not counting our supply chain. So having the opportunity to run electric or bi-mode trains rather than diesel has the biggest impact on our carbon footprint. So we're really looking for government to give us a much clearer programme of electrification and, and timing of electrification so that we can plan longer term around our rolling stock and how we can decarbonise in that way. But as well as that, we're um, as a first group and each of our train operating companies, we're setting science-based targets at the moment to get to net zero, which are aligned to the Paris Agreement. And we're setting out our decarbonisation roadmaps of how we're going to get there. But again, the challenge for us is, well, if we don't know what's going to be electrified when, we don't know what our rolling stock options are, that makes it challenging to, to set that decarb roadmap out in any distance. We're also looking to get a bit of certainty from, from Network Rail in terms of their procurement of electricity for the electric trains, because the UK rail is the largest user of electricity in the UK. So we have a huge purchasing power. Um, so we're really looking for, for Network Rail on our behalf as a train industry to be investing in renewable energy. And that will be Great uh, British Railways, won't it? Obviously, the who well, subsume uh, Network Rail. And, and I suppose they're in lies the problem to some extent because you probably still don't know the parameters at the moment it sounds you know fantastic that you know things are going to be less fragmented one would hope i just wanted to pick up on um one of helen's point around um things like like cdas um so we've been uh, and also picking up on the collaboration point so we've been doing a lot of work within the industry collaborating with network rail and other partners around traffic management systems and connected driver advisory systems because the constant stop start particularly with diesel trains is quite an inefficient way of, of driving and having to get up to full speed again you, um, it emits a lot more emissions so we've been doing quite a lot of collaborative work within the industry to trial those systems uh, measure their benefits for further rollout and actually that's better for the passengers as well isn't it rather than someone speeding along at whatever 100 miles per hour and then suddenly coming to a grinding halt actually managing that process is better for Absolutely. the pasture as well as good for carbon emissions. That's a, a really interesting point that you've raised there. Um, Helen, if I can bring you in. You know, we're doing a lot of work around, obviously, electrification. We've got a great capability within our rolling stock uh, team for um, hydrogen and battery trains, doing a lot of work with our clients in sort of early sort of engagement collaboration to really look at 
outcome-based uh, challenges as opposed to sort of being very specified. And that means we can be a lot more innovative. And there are some really great examples of where we've done some really exciting things on sort of East Coast Mainline and and TRU, for example, where we've used, we've designed new new ways of, of doing surge arresters, for example, for in the electrification portfolio, means that we don't have to raise or pull down bridges because we can actually surge the power through and, and doesn't get disrupted. We've done a lot of work on the East Coast Mainline with early contractor engagement where we've saved a huge amount of cost and also driven down carbon significantly through um, our work on there and particularly with things like static frequency converters where we we can actually manage the access to the main power grid in a different way which requires a lot less equipment our OLE which is overhead line equipment our solution there uses a lot less arms and a lot less kit than most do and so that's obviously cheaper to install less concrete in the grounds as it were but also easier to maintain um, and that's just sort of in some of the electrification portfolio and then of course you know it goes on beyond that to all the work that we're doing with digital station management where we can actually manage and operate stations from regional operating centers rather than having all of the kit in every single station uh, doing the same thing with signaling and control where king's cross for example the new signaling in king's cross is actually managed and controlled from the york rail operating centre so you don't need that infrastructure locally everywhere now it's because of digitalization and connectivity you can actually manage it in a much more sort of holistic uh, view yeah I, I could go on and on yeah um, some great examples <laughs> and actually what's so brilliant is that you know that level of innovation that's already there despite the fact that we've got a victorian railway yeah. of nearly you know 200 years old i, I think the 200 year anniversary is coming relatively soon in the next year or so i don't know the exact dates but it's on my mind that it's going to be with us soon the, the other one that was of interest to me was discontinuous electrification yeah. And I had to look that one up. So in, in essence, that's basically using electric where you can, but then using other sources yeah. where you can't. That's right. So is that a, a good solution for many parts of the country to be able to think about in order to well, tackle the, the, the carbon? There's a very big debate on that subject. But having said that, in certain parts of the country where the Victorian railway that we keep referring to is slightly more bumpy and complex, electrification isn't necessarily the right route. But then you've got to think about, well, OK, well, what's the alternative? Because actually hydrogen train trying to chug up a very steep mountainside isn't particularly cost, you know, isn't particularly energy efficient either. So it's about the balance and it's about trying to work out what's the right solution for the geography as opposed to a blanket kind of statement that one is better than the other. It is about that right solution. Yeah, indeed. Uh, which makes it more difficult, of course, for the train operator to understand, to work out their procurement plan because it, it isn't a clear-cut answer. No. But what we definitely need is clear guidance and investment from the government on for electrification. We need to get this going. We can't just sit and wait any longer. We've got to get it moving. No, and I get the impression, and that's probably from reading a few articles about it, that actually if you carry on the current plan for electrification, you're not going to hit those targets. Yeah. You're going to be 10, maybe 15 years out. So it's a huge challenge. Lara, just because of your role, I'd love to know, you know, the behavioural changes that you think are needed to make change happen. That, that's got to be in your bag, surely. It's something you think, live and breathe daily. Yeah, so behaviour change. Fundamentally, a lot of achieving net zero, whilst there is a need for 
innovation technology for some of the gaps that we still need to meet in order to get there. Actually, a number of solutions, as Emma and Helen have both mentioned, is that actually they're already available. It's a case of the industry actually making them the mainstream. We need to move away from some of the innovations that we've proven over the years work. We know where they do, we know where they don't. There are some that we still need to establish where the applicability is. But for those where there is clarity of actually, this works here, we could roll it out. We need to industrialise that innovation. So there is a massive push on needing to accelerate actually pretty much nailing the basics so that actually we can move on to being far more innovative and pushing the boundary. Because at the moment we struggle in the industry and this I'll come on to the behavior change element to this is fundamentally we're trying to tackle net zero in one go we're actually we need to break it down and in order to do that we need to start implementing what is available now in addition to continuing the innovation side of things to get what we need in the future so to implement what we need now it is primarily ensuring that we do use and have the right behaviors in the industry so it's evolving the industry that we're currently in to adopt and ingrain and fully ingrain not just doing it as a nice trial in a portion of a project or we'll test it on a small piece but really rolling that out the behavior change piece is a lot harder to do than actually developing technology is is certainly hard but actually then getting people to use it day in day out making it the mainstream there's a push around updating specifications a need for the, the market availability so that actually it's a UK-wide scale innovation that's available and cost-effective for everyone so that it's actually affordable. The behaviour change piece is difficult because actually it's going to require a sustained focus and over quite a period of time because we all know that behaviour changes, we've all had the New Year's resolution of, you know, being healthy, we'll go to the gym. By March, we've all packed it in and given up on our, or most of us have. The reason for that, so if we are genuinely going to drive that behaviour change, there is going to need to be accountability, which isn't always easy, it can be awkward, and constant progress and sustained focus on ensuring those changes happen. And that's not the easiest of all of the things that you can look in at net zero. So at the moment, there is so much going on in the space that the behaviour change piece isn't always taken up by everyone because it's not the easiest one to do in the first instance, but it is the most required. But it's quite interesting because we talked about, you know, collaboration, which sounds great in theory, but much more difficult to do in practice. And one gets the impression, again, from reading sort of railway strategies and and looking at reviews that the adversarial nature of the railways industry hasn't helped us get to where we are today. But that's the past and maybe still the present. So hopefully the future is brighter there. And actually, just on Helen's point, when she mentioned about um, electrification doesn't have to be expensive. People have got that wrong idea. And just to pick up on your point that sometimes that maybe less is more or, or just picking up on those smaller projects rather than thinking, oh God, we've got to decarbonise. How are we going to do this? But actually, if you break it down, that's the best way to approach it. Yeah, I think there's a huge part. It can be quite overwhelming if all of a sudden, okay, you've got net zero and you map out exactly where your emissions start. Well, actually, there's a huge portfolio, but then prioritising and understanding what's feasible to do now, what will need you know, it's a mid long term, but making it bite sized and also relatable. The educational piece is massive in this in terms of we don't need everyone to be a carbon expert or a climate change expert. What we do need is a certain amount of appreciation for it. But actually, if you're an engineer, if you're a planner, if you're a QS, regardless of your role, understanding what does reducing carbon look like in your day to day, even if it's used in a different language, it's understanding, okay, what are those key things that need to happen? And then once that becomes ingrained, building on that. So yeah, it's more learning to walk before we can run and making sure that we're not 
trying to do a marathon before we can start to. Yeah, and how do we make it more cost-effective? I, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, Emma, at all. What would be really good to be, is to be able to have your list of options and to have them all costed and have a cost for each kilogram of carbon that could be reduced. But I think that that's quite difficult to do. And maybe get some other thoughts. Helen, how, how can we make it more cost-effective? I think we're going to go back to this collaboration principle, but I think we need to be a bit more specific about what we mean by that. I've only been in the rail industry two years. One of the things I have really been conscious of that I've never really experienced in my previous life is the lack of collaboration across the rail industry. And it surprises me massively. You know, I go to, well, pre-COVID, went to events and heard Andrew Haynes talking all the time about how he knew that the future of the rail industry was about us all working together for a common goal. But it doesn't happen. And if we if we just look at CDAS, just as an example on CDAS, we're doing a huge amount of work on CDAS, developing solutions in our, you know, in not in our silo necessarily, because we're doing it with certain customers. But then, you know, first group or first rail are doing uh, it, it work on CDAS. Are we doing it together? I think possibly we are actually in some cases, but 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 are we actually doing it together? You know, and it's it I feel like there's loads of stuff that if we actually pulled a sort of group of it cross industry operations level people rather than the big cheeses all the time into a, you know to work together we could really make a difference i think that's where the cost piece is yes we can look at it at a project there's always loads of different suppliers on an individual project get those suppliers into a room right at the beginning and say how are you going to deliver you know drive down the carbon in this project that's one level you could do it but you could also do it around some of these more sort of strategic areas or portfolio kind of areas that that are key so yeah i've collaboration but in a different way than people talk about i think uh, and lara's nodding there yeah have you got I, something you want to say? <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. I think um, we recently submitted a paper for the rail industry around demonstrating and breaking down the stigma around the affordability of electrification and actually how much it would cost to electrify a kilometre of railway. Um, so we also work within the energy field. So actually a lot of this is bringing cross-knowledge sharing from other sectors. So we work across the entirety of transportation and it's bringing that knowledge in to demonstrate actually this is feasible to do. It does require changing some of the previous habits that we've had. Um, another bit is also taking the learning from previous electrification projects. There is a huge amount of data that the industry, whilst yes, we need probably more, there is already a huge amount that we could use to inform how not to do it again, but also build on where we actually did it really well. Because um, there is a lot that could change feasibly if we use the data to inform how we progress this. And on the piece around collaboration, I entirely agree with Helen. One of the, um, the greatest, I think personally, one of the biggest opportunities is actually the business models that, that, that the industry follows don't necessarily incentivize that. And actually, true collaboration and meeting net zero, fundamentally, we cannot retrofit net zero into our existing business models. So to do that, that doesn't mean we need anarchy and we're starting from scratch. What it does require, however, is that we genuinely change how we procure because we can all talk about collaboration, we can put forward all these ideas, but fundamentally, if we continue to procure the way we currently do and the way that the structure of the industry, it won't drive those end outcomes. So it's bringing carbon onto the same pillar as cost in addition to other elements that need to be on that same level as well, be it biodiversity, social value, etc. But that will require a, a model in which 
They are integrated, not trying to be retrofitted into existing. And actually, when I looked on the Costain website, there was a piece that, um, that you had contributed to. You talked about challenging existing business models and processes. So that's exactly what you're referring to there, isn't it? How's that going? It's not always easy to challenge. And I think we're very comfortable as an industry challenge the supply chain, but it can be a bit awkward challenging the client. And that's not that they're not willing to do it. I think it's just historically how the approach has always been. And so actually, truly challenging does require a certain amount of being bold, being brave, um, and actually being the first to rock the boat a little bit in a way, and also recognising that everyone has a part to play in this. So it's not just it's all down to one organisation or one type of entity that the, the fault relies on. It's ensuring that everyone's in there, but someone pointing out some of the paradoxes of our industry or the elephants in the room that we kind of all know about, but don't really address low carbon concrete being just an example of that, if you like. We've been trialing the stuff for years. We know where it works. We know where it doesn't. We know where we could potentially apply this as the default. Doesn't mean you blanket apply it, but we need to move away from continuing and repeating the same trial to actually, this is the default and building on that. And that's just an example, but there's a huge amount of them in the industry where we could continue to, to challenge and build on that. Yes, a very good example as well. Well, let's now turn our attention on how the rail industry can actually support government. And I'm talking about national, devolved and locally to meet decarbonisation targets. And if you could think about how these tools, techniques and technologies, how they could be implemented and realistically what, what is needed to support that implementation and how the industry can make change happen more quickly. Because as we've, I think, all come to the conclusion, the clock is ticking and it's been mentioned several times that decarbonisation needs to happen further and faster if we have any chance of meeting net zero by the target date. Um, Helen, can I get your thoughts on that, please? I think it, it, it actually goes back a lot on what we've been talking about. You know, we're one voice. Siemens Mobility goes and talks to the DFT, tries to influence government. But how much more powerful would we be if we were three voices? You know, if you then multiply that. So I think, I think there is, it, you know, it, it is going to come back a little bit to the same thing. We have to make it easier for people to understand what needs to happen. We were talking earlier on in a different meeting about mobility as a service, which is fundamentally the integration of that, that sort of first to last mile journey planning and integration of multimodes of transport, whether it be, you know, it's a bit like, you know, you go, you go on an app and you can say, I need to get from A to B and I can go by foot and it's going to do this number of steps and burn this amount of calories, or I can go on an e-scooter or a bike, or I can grab a taxi or a demand responsive bus or whatever it is. And, and it's all in one system and, and enables you as a passenger to look at that properly. And we were talking about, you know, how do we influence, because there is a there's lots of different views in the market on what mass or mobility as a service actually is and whether it's whether how much difference it's going to make. And personally, I believe it will make a big difference if we do it right. But it's the what is it that's right is the question. So how do we get that message out to the industry? And then we were starting to talk about, well, we know traditionally we, unlike, um, unlike First Rail, obviously, but Siemens Mobility and, and Costain as well, are primarily B2B, you know, in terms of our messaging. We don't do the B2C communications in terms of that passenger influence. So how can we work with First Group to, to do that B2C 
communication of this is what good could look like. So for me, again, it's, you know, how who is it that we're trying to influence here? We need the, we need a decision absolutely on the rollout of electrification, yes. Do we have a responsibility to make sure that those decision makers understand that it's not as expensive as it used to be or, or how we can do things better and how we can do things differently, how we can do, use digital technologies such as sort of simulation and modelling to an extent whereby we don't have to do so much trackside, it reduces the time it reduces the cost, it reduces the reliability of the service, it improves the handover. There's loads of stuff that we need to start, you know, really people to go, okay, well, we're going to take this seriously now rather than we're always going to do it the same way as we've always done it before. Laura, from your point of view, how do we go about convincing the government, whatever government we're talking about, both devolve locally or, or the national government, to invest in decarbonisation? I think it's less about convincing on that front. It's more about demonstrating actually where it's feasible, what the priorities areas are. As it was said before, I think consistency in the industry of actually we've all signed up to net zero. We might all have strategies that look different visually, but fundamentally anyone who's serious about meeting net zero is addressing the same emission sources because actually we all need to tackle the same areas because we have a very similar supply chain. So if we are truly consistent and understand actually what are the priorities and taking those to government or to local authorities to demonstrate actually of all the things you need to do these are the first ones and this is from the learning the collective learning that we have be it how we deliver it the data that's used from digital solutions that can inform actually how can you do this better through to the innovative um, and renewables that you can integrate into the systems etc so there's a huge amount that we could do if we provided clarity and consistency around what we're doing as an industry to local authorities and government. I think there'd also be the on the counter side of that is a push for what's the consequence of not meeting at the moment. So to Helen's point around, okay, where does responsibility lie? 100% still unsure, but also what's the consequence of not doing this, which is also still unclear at the moment. And I think setting the precedent of understanding, okay, this is what we've all signed up to. That's where we really need to scale up and accelerate. And Emma, we haven't forgotten you, by the way. We'd love to get your thoughts on this as well. I don't know if you've got any um, observations on what you think make the biggest difference from First Rail and First Group's point of view. Well, we're in a really interesting position now because we're contracting under the new national rail contracts and the DFT are contracting with us and funding us. So the new contracts, the DFT are asking us to set out our decarbonisation roadmaps and how we're going to get to net zero, which is really refreshing to hear. Um, so that gives us the opportunity to look at what our net zero targets will be and that roadmap and path of how we're going to get there. And that picks up on Lara's point about taking sort of tangible action. So um, we can start to sort of build up that, that map. The interesting thing, I think, for us will be once we've developed that roadmap, when we go next, go back to the DFT to negotiate the next contracts with options for how we can decarbonise and the costs, then that will be the interesting conversation because ultimately, you know, these initiatives will need to be funded going forward. So um, I think we're in a really interesting position to influence the the decisions that are being make, made at the moment to get to net zero. And, and you think the cost and funding models will support that as well? Do you, do you think you're moving in the right direction? Well, I think that's the interesting thing that will be tested in the future, whether it's through the DFT or through Great British Railways. But, you know, we have we, there has to be some funding to get to net zero. We, it has to be it has to be paid for. Um, you know, it's, we've got a legally binding target for the, for the UK to get to net zero. So, you know, it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out, I think, over the next couple of years. 
once we start to have some more sort of tangible costs against carbon savings that can be delivered. And Emma, I don't know if you've got any thoughts about, from First Group's point of view, how increased innovation and digitalisation have brought the benefits that they have to, to the journey. That's the focus that we're looking at. And, and if you've had the opportunity to work with SMEs that have enabled you to be sort of agile and more innovative, or whether you've actually had that in-house, that capability, and what impact that's had? Um, yeah, we have been doing some collaboration around, as I mentioned earlier, around, around with Network Rail, around piloting traffic management systems and CDAS. But I think it's going back to the point that's already been made. We're, we're quite good at trialling things um, and then trialling things again. Um, it's about, you know, trialling it, proving it, rolling it rolling it out um, on a large scale. And I think that's probably one of the challenges we still have. I think there are pockets of collaboration. The RSSB do quite a lot of work around decarbonisation and collaboration in the industry. But again, we've got the Traction Decarbonisation Network Strategy, which is you know a brilliant map and shows us what could be electrified, what can be run on hydrogen, what could be run on battery and biomodes. But it's taking that to the next level and saying okay this is the plan this is the funding scheme and this is how we're going to get there and then we can all start to work together to deliver things we talked about start together to deliver things but what do you think um i'll ask this to lara and also to helen um what are the opportunities that you need to explore collectively have there anything that you've identified because it is about prioritizing things rather than I think we've got to that conclusion now where we can't take everything on in one big go because we're never going to meet those targets so opportunities that you need to explore collectively anything that you've identified Lara yeah I think it falls for me personally I think from the role that I've had and the insight that I have around the life cycle of a project there is a huge amount around not trying to prescribe one sole solution so be it the energy point around whether it is a hydrogen chain or electrification there isn't one answer that's going to cover the entirety of the UK or that will be applicable so I think we need to stop going around potentially the little bit of the fishbowl around the argument of which is right and truly focus on okay we understand it is going to be a mix and a marriage between all of those, how do we integrate that and also bring in into the party the energy providers and energy networks? Because at the moment, transport and energy overlap as networks, but don't necessarily integrate as well. as. And this is actually going to require a huge amount of engagement with industries that work in parallel, not necessarily as linked as they need to for if we are going to be fully electrified in hydrogen. And Helen, from your point of view, again, the opportunities that you need to explore collectively based on what Lara's just said and to build on that. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean the over-engineering is an interesting one because it's not, I think it's over-engineering, but it's also that we're, there's such, I'm not, and again, I'm, I'm not for one second saying that this should impact on safety, just as Lara said, and we've got to be very, very clear on that but we do as an industry probably overcompensate which means that we spend a lot more time trackside for example doing those last tests before handover that actually it's 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 possibly could be looked at in terms of the number of people i think i think you've got we got we don't haven't really talked about people in this conversation actually people are carbon emitters and our you know ourselves the more people you've got working on a project track side whether it be from an install or a maintenance perspective or an operations perspective that's more of a carbon you know that's more 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 carbon heavy because they're traveling to that site instead of not you know they're doing stuff there that perhaps could be done remotely so i think that's another way where 
the power of sort of digitalization, remote monitoring and, and remote access to stuff is going to really make it, it's going to make a difference. I mean, thousands and thousands of people that we have on trackside in the railway industry is extraordinary. I mean, and for very good reason until we have the right technology to stop it, you know, to lessen it. So I think there's a lot of work we need to do in terms of understanding the power of digitalization. But I, I do also just want to go back to another point, which is, is an interesting, it came up in a conversation I was having this morning. Um, do we focus, you know, in terms of the things we can do together, and it was exactly this conversation, but for the slightly different angle, do we look at a region and go, actually, you know, what can we as an industry do together for a region? You know, Scotland is very, very vocal on its decarbonisation agenda and, you know, its targets 2035. And, you know, their their overall decarbonisation of transport agenda is, is, you know, is about getting people out of cars and onto public transport. And then they've got their decarbonisation of rail targets as well. So, so it's those two things they're looking at in parallel. Do we look at it as a region and go, okay, well, what can we as an industry do together as that region? But, you know, procurement doesn't allow us to do that. It isn't isn't set up like that. We're all in competitions. It's really difficult. Or do we pick a particular sort of key thing like electrification and work together and go, okay, well, if the three businesses actually put their heads together on a white paper to government about electrification, I'd be a darn sight more powerful than it would be if any one of us did it individually. So it's about, you know, making that choice. And I think it could go, it could be either way because, you know, you've got Transport for Grace Manchester, for example, you know, well, all of the transport authorities got massive, great big decarbonisation agendas. You know, we want this to be a nice, clean place to live. We don't want people, you know, driving around in cars. We don't want congestion. We want ease of use of transport you know again do you look at something like that and go right here is what we can do as a as a sort of a an example of of how actually the industry working together can really make a difference but i think that's what we're going to do is really go okay well what's that burning platform and which one are we going to focus on so watch this space for the three of you. <laughs> I'm going to see you presenting your thoughts to whatever form of government it is, whether it's a national devolved, local or metropolitan areas as well. Well, we're coming sadly towards the end of this podcast, but before we wrap things up, it'd be interesting to get a few final thoughts from all three of you as to what you'd like all the stakeholders and the audience listening to really think about and act upon when it comes to decarbonising the journey. So in essence, what you think is a really important point that you want to impart with people. And, and Laura, if I can start with you, I know you're thinking, oh no, why me? <laughs> no, it's all good. If I was to say one thing, it would be no one has all the answers to net zero. So don't try and find them all out on your own because it will, does require everyone and we all have a part to play in. But whatever you do identify as the priority areas that you are focusing on, making sure they are the most relevant is to ensure that you sustain that focus and you, you you take it and don't overcomplicate it, basically. Focus, keep the sustained momentum going and then try and build. Don't try and solve net zero in one go. Yeah, like that, don't overcomplicate. Yeah, very good. Emma, your thoughts, please. I think the will is there um, and I think the technology is there. I just think we need to come together. We've talked about collaboration a lot, but come together, collaborate as an industry and come up with a clear plan that we can that we can deliver. Yep, can't argue with that. Uh, wise words there, Emma. And finally, Helen, what would you like the audience to think about and act upon? Well, I'm going to agree with um, with both Lara and Emma, as as I have gone done all the way through here. But one of the things I think is that, um, you know, the, the technology is absolutely there now and we need to 
understand that and make the most of it. And we need to do it together so we're not all tripping over each other or spending too much more time and money than is necessary developing similar solutions to the same problem. I absolutely think we, we must stop trying to overcomplicating it. There is a real risk that decarbonisation becomes a sort of an intellectual subject. And the problem with that is it's not accessible by the people who need to make the difference if it is an academic subject. We need everybody, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, whether it's in the rail industry or not in the rail industry, to think about their impact on on this and what they can do. And, you know, when we look at the rail industry specifically, when we've got people on site or we've got people doing design or we've got people, you know, doing testing or, or product design or whatever it is, how do we actually take responsibility ourselves to make a difference? Yeah, I like that, Helen. It's, you know, not academic, it's personal, isn't it? Yeah, very wise words there. So thank you to Lara Young, a Group Climate Change Director at Costain, to Emma Alexander, Head of Sustainability for Rail First Group, and to Helen Davis, the Director of Strategy and Business Development, Rail Infrastructure at Siemens Mobility. And listening to all of your contributions today, there's a real call to action, a real clear call to action. The industry needs to move away from that fragmented approach of the past and indeed the present and pull and work together to embed these tools, technologies and techniques that we've heard about during this podcast to deliver on the wider economic, social and environmental goals. And I'll finish as I started that if we're going to reach the climate change goals and decarbonisation targets by 2050, the rail industry needs to decarbonise further and faster. But realistically, to achieve those goals, the government needs to be ambitious and proactive to enable us all to meet the biggest challenge facing the planet. Although, of course, businesses and society, and as Helen said, people also have a significant part to play too. But government direction, action support and funding is critical. Well, thank you for listening to Decarbonising the Rail Industry, How to Go Further and Faster podcasts. And until next time, I wish you all the very best. <laughs>